In recent years, I have noticed a kind of uptick in conversations and the pace of conversations and the intensity of conversations about mental health come the holidays. Some of that has to do with maybe the shorter days. Some of that has to do with being around people who might be triggering or just some difficult family dynamics, the pressure of spending a whole lot of money or not spending money. It's a kind of intense time. And so it seemed an appropriate time to release this conversation with Andy Kolker. Andy is a licensed therapist. She is also an author, and she works at that wonderful dynamic intersection of mental health, spiritual practice, religion, and science. The place where we all live. <laughs> I had a delightful conversation with her. Turns out we have a little bit of personal history. Uh, I've benefited from her work, and I've mostly benefited in recent years paying attention to the way she talks about, engages in, and guides other people through conversations about that really turbulent intersection. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Check it out. You are in Castle Rock, Colorado now. I am. You're not from there. I'm not. I don't know if you remember. Okay, do you remember me telling you that I went to Pacific Lutheran University? I remember that you, I, I know that you and I have a, like a, 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 maybe like a slight collision of sorts at PLU. Yeah, so I went to undergrad at Pacific Lutheran University. And um, I was telling my husband this morning, like, I was like, yeah, so I, I saw a concert. At, it was like called The Cave or something. It was and I literally, so I have a nose piercing, and I had just gotten my nose pierced. This is so random. Like, this has That's been good, so let's long. Let's absolutely start here. I'm, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> yeah, so like... I remember um, my roommate had like let lent me a CD of your music, so I'd like been listening, and then I went to the concert um, and and loved it. But it was just a really trying to remember. I probably would have been about a junior in college, so that would have put it at 2004, maybe 2003. Yeah. Um, But yeah. So and then. You know, this last couple of years, and, and I had, um, I think I'd kind of lost track of you. And then I was like, oh my gosh, Justin McRoberts, I, I used to listen to your music all the time. Yes, we did. Yeah. A, I did a series of, uh, of uh, like stickers and like this funny little campaign. Like, oh, I don't even, oh, I thought it was funny. We did a campaign. I'll just say it was a, I will say it was a campaign. Whether it was funny or not is a matter of experience. <laughs> I found it hilarious in which the, the entire campaign was Justin McRoberts. He's still around uh, because <laughs> because because I was literally right. on. I was uh, you actually. The, here's a name you might remember then as well is there was an artist at the time who's playing a lot of shows named Sean McDonald. Oh yeah, so Sean, I listened to a ton of yes. Sean McDonald. Yep. So so um, I don't remember exactly how it came up, but like we were in the same area at the same time, and uh, he said, "Hey, I'm playing a show across town. Pop over." And he goes, <laughs> he literally says on the phone, he goes, "Honestly, man." I didn't even know you were still around. And I was like, that's the weirdest thing to say out loud to another artist. But God bless you, kid. And, uh, so, you yeah, know, I, I that was is there. So I, did, I was there. I think the venue is called The Cave. I did play that show. I think it was 2003. Um, <laughs> and that's when I started covering Patty Griffin. Um, I think I'm not okay. one of the first times I played that song there. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So yeah. you went to school there. But, and before that, where were you living? So I am originally from, it's called Astoria, Oregon, 
and it's on the northwest corner of Oregon where the Columbia River and the Pacific Ocean meet. So really beautiful, very gray, like very gray, (laughs) which is, I mean, it's so green. Um, I mean, obviously there's been a ton of fires and issues with climate in Oregon this year, Um, but, but growing up there, you know, just so much gray. And so, so Colorado, one of the things that I love is, is the sun. Yes. Um, Having grown up in, I mean, honestly, like I, I played a ton of sports growing up. I played three sports. um, And then in college, I played basketball. And so for me, that was like one of the ways, um, you know, that I coped with, I mean, both coming from like a really, like a lot of childhood trauma. And then that it's just, it's hard to be in gray dark all the time too. Yeah, it is. There's, there is something to be said for the incredible beauty of the Pacific Northwest and the price you pay, uh, to have it. The 800 foot gray ceiling for most of the year is kind of a bummer. And if you can yeah. deal, then you get an amazing, amazing July and August, and oftentimes a wonderful September, and then it's back to dealing. <laughs> totally, yeah. Like the you know that especially that very northwest corner, because yes. um, there are parts of Oregon that are warmer and and have different climates. But um, it, gosh, I think the thing I will say is I miss water, hmm. something fierce. Because I mean, I grew up around so much water yeah. and, and Colorado, I mean, there's a, there's a few lakes and stuff, but it's pretty dry. Um, and so that's the thing, like particularly the ocean, that's, that's what I miss. Now your family historically ended up in Washington state, but that was not, you mean my mom, but, but that wasn't the destination. Yeah. Are you remembering that from Trisoster? Yeah. Well, it's a really interesting moment. Like, uh, like, uh, it's an immigration story. That in, in which your family was trying to get to DC. Yeah, good memory. So, and yeah, you it's ended up in Washington story. State. And I'll, before you get into it, the thing, I, I I hope this is a compliment. The thing that actually sparked in me was, um, one of my favorite authors wrote a book called Beloved, and in mm-hmm. her book, uh, Beloved, she writes about this this family whose last name is Dead. This kid's name is Macon Dead, <laughs> and the story about how his name. How their family name is dead is that in their immigration story, as his as uh, his mother was being asked, like, what's you know, who's your father's name? No, what's the name of the man? What's the name of the man? She said he's dead, and so they wrote the name dead on their paperwork, and he became Macon dead, which is again, that's one of those immigration stories. It's like you end up places because there's a because there's a bit of like language miss. Which has all these wonderful relational parallels. <laughs> like, how do we end up here in our relationship? How do I end up here in my culture? Oh, our language is way off and we're missing each other. And mm. I'm understanding these words differently than yours. So we end up in Washington State instead of Washington, D.C. Because mm-hmm. you didn't know what I meant by what I said. Mm-hmm. It's, a real, it's a wonderful parallel. So, but your family was, yeah. was trying to get to D.C., ended up in Washington so, State. So the, the, the family legend... Um, cause I've been hearing this story since I was, you know, kind of like maybe four or five years old, but my mom was originally born in Budapest, Hungary. Yeah. She was born on the pest side, actually. Hmm. And in 1956, she was born on the pest. Side. Um, the, there's a river that cuts through, it's like Buddha and pest. 
So there's two sides. I've actually, I've never been there. I just, I just know this from lots of random things, but so she was born on the pest side or they say it pest. So, um, my mom, my grandpa was a tailor in, in Hungary. And at that time, communists were really trying to make a power play for the country. Um, in 1956 is when things really began to essentially climax. And my mom was four years old. Uh, my grandpa had been visited by essentially like the, like the communist party in the area. And he was getting a lot of pressure to join. And um, as you can imagine, the consequences are pretty severe, like of not doing that. And so my family, my, my mom and my uncle and my mom's parents escaped in the back of an ambulance out of Budapest. Um, And they went through like, Vienna, Austria. And, and sadly, um, the, the ambulance driver was actually arrested when he got back is, is this is my, this is from my mom. Um, and so she, they, you know, they, they were refugees. And so they left and went to, for a long time, my mom thought that it was to Ellis Island, but they actually were taken up to Canada. I think it was like, there was like a resettlement center yeah. and my grandpa was asked, where would you, like they were working towards going to the U S and my grandpa was asked, um, you know, where would you like to go? And all he could say was Washington and he didn't know <laughs> to say Washington DC. And so they literally put them on a train and my mom was raised in Aberdeen, Washington. Yeah. Um, and that's how they got there. And so, yeah, I mean, the chances Right. Like all yeah. the things. It's pretty bananas. It's bananas. Um, I want folks to read the book. And so I, I don't want you to recount, you know, the specifics about childhood trauma. I think it's more important to hear you like more comprehensively articulate it. But um, you're still in the there. There are two things you do really early in the book that I think I I'm not going to say are really important, but like that I found I found really important. And the one of one of which is um, you're unapologetically shaped by your past and you identify it as traumatic as opposed to. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like so, you, you are uh, as opposed to the sort of shying around uh, about it mm-hmm. that there still is. There's not just still a stigma around. And, and we'll talk about the word trauma in a few minutes. There's, there's not just still, you know, a stigma about having been traumatized or victimized as a child, that it's difficult to talk about publicly. Some of that's embarrassment. Some of that's how it's actually received. Mm-hmm. But but there's on top of that, the the layer of like, you should be past that now, that your mm-hmm. life is your life is good now. Mm-hmm. So that shouldn't affect you in the same way. You you're really clear early on in the book that this is still not just a part of who you are it's a significant informative part of who you are. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about like, like as an adult with a healthy life, healthy relationships, a career, you're still, you are still informed by and, and to some degree shaped by your traumatic past. And you do that without apology. Like talk about that tension. Is like, is mm-hmm. you ever sense the sort of like, I should be over this crap part of things. <laughs> or is it like, no, I like, I get this now. I understand how the brain works and, Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great question. Um, I think you're right. And I actually appreciate the word unapologetic. I mean, here's what I will say first is that I've been doing what I would consider like healing work in my life um, for about 
15 years. Hmm. And what I mean by that, for you personally, for me personally, like my own journey of healing from complex trauma, which is what I would consider my experience, meaning it wasn't one event. It wasn't, and it wasn't events that were resolved. It was chronic interpersonal, and sometimes what I would consider big T trauma in the sense of PTSD, of observing profoundly disturbing sort of interpersonal violence. Um, So I had a combination of that throughout my childhood and really up until, um, gosh, I would say 22 years old. Um, so, so I, I start there because one of the things I talk about a lot is that the more complicated the trauma, the more complex the healing will be. And what that means is, is that like, let's say someone has, for example, a car accident and that car accident, um, fits the diagnostic criteria for PTSD because it was significantly like maybe something happened that was, uh, you know, someone came, you know, it was like a life and death situation or something really significant. But what we need to understand about that is that that's a single event situation. And, and not that that's not important because obviously if you have, if you've developed PTSD, that's very significant. But if you go to someone who has the training and, and ability to help you process that, for example, through like EMDR, which is a trauma modality. Yeah that one experience can really truly get processed, especially if someone has had a, I would say a good enough childhood or good enough experiences of care, like pretty quickly, maybe, maybe like eight sessions. Yeah. You take a situation where someone actually doesn't even recall, right? Like I don't have a time in my life that is prior to experiencing trauma. I don't have a memory of that. And to understand the brain is to understand that our our brain develops from the bottom up, meaning we develop our survival responses way before, for example, our prefrontal cortex, which is something that happens later in adulthood and helps with like long-term decision-making and regulation, right? So when trauma happens Um, especially in childhood, although complex trauma always is going to be complex, no matter when that is experienced. Um, That is so young in your brain. It's so default, right? Like if you think about the way that our bodies go back to a default, and this is what you've experienced, it's kind of like someone gave you a, like your computer chip that somebody gave you, there were some significant impairments and ruptures in the way that you see the world and you see yourself and maybe you see others. And I want to add here, I know this is a lot, but I like, I like to give a big overview because whenever people hear trauma, what I notice is either people get really scared or they get really shaming too, um, both of self, sometimes of others. And so one, one thing that's really important to understand as we discuss trauma is that the ways that our body maybe had to adapt, the ways my body had to adapt as a kid to survive trauma um, is actually a gift. Hmm. Now, I know that sounds weird because we're mean, like, your Wait. body, your, your body's natural responses to trauma, not the trauma itself, but the oh, fact not that the body, trauma. Let's be very clear. Your body, the, but the fact that your body, that's right, your actual body has um, protocols 
Mm-hmm. Capacity. Yeah. And capacity is that is a gift. That's right. And for me, I mean, that's a point of integration for my faith is that I believe that that is a kind of a, a, a small miracle mm. <laughs> that our bodies can help us survive. And that's a big deal because without those responses, the profound psychological weight um, actually would even be more harmful. We would never have space from the trauma. We would because there always- are things that happen, there, are things, there are ways that your body is affected that your brain, that like my, my thinking capacities, my reasoning capacities just can't touch. Like the fact that my mm-hmm. body has natural protocols is when mm-hmm. my body deals with, this, with a trauma that mm-hmm. I, can't qu- I can't quite access those same protocols. I can't deal with it in the same way if I'm just, if the phrase is like in my head. Yeah, I mean, I think as we do healing work, we learn to integrate. And that's part of what it means to, to move towards healing is that, mm-hmm. you know, those parts of my story, those never go away. It's that I am able to be with myself, to be with my story and, and, and really turn towards pain in myself and really in others in ways I would not have been able to had I not been doing this work for for 15 years. So for me, you know, and and I want to add it, there is ways also to really move trauma through your body. Yes. I mean, that's the other miracle. And I get to witness that sometimes in my office or in myself or in, I mean, to see folks move through pain, like I just, it is, it is an honor every single time. And to, and our bodies have this natural capacity to do that. And trauma actually, what's hard about trauma is that it, it overwhelms the capacity to do that. And that's why healing actually is been the opposite. It's helping to find the support and the resources so our body can actually tap into what it's already wired to do. That's good. You uh you do you make this interesting distinction between um big T and little T trauma. Uh, I want to hear you talk about the word trauma for a little bit because w- one of the whether it's shaming or clarity, one of I, uh, I wonder if the word gets overused. I wonder if uh, like uh, it's a pretty clear distinction for you, big T versus little T trauma. So I'd love for you to like you you got into a little bit. I'd love for you to start there, and then is the word like culturally is it overused? Like it's it's kind of a joke at times. So it's like I'm traumatized mm. by. Mm-hmm. Is it? Uh, have we become too? Fa- yeah. Have we become too familiar with some of these terms that now, like, it's harder to come through that doorway when it's real? Mm-hmm. Let, yeah. So uh, let's come back to that. And if I forget it, like, prompt me because I, I want to talk about that. But sure. but to go to the definitions first. So first, I'll just say I have, and I I work from a very broad definition of trauma in general. And I do that based off of the work of folks like Peter Levine, Stephen Porges, Daniel Siegel, Pat Ogden. And I'll talk about that more in a second. But essentially, my definition that I work from is the idea that trauma is anything that overwhelms our nervous system's capacity to cope and thereby gets stuck in the body because we're not able to fully process it. Yes. So this definition 
can then go into two different, I, I talk about it in two categories, not every therapist, not even every trauma therapist uses these categories, yeah. but I like them because I think they're an on-ramp to have a bigger discussion about yeah. trauma. And that's really always been my goal is that we, is that we normalize and talk about this language more. And so, yeah. So with big T trauma, essentially what I'm saying is PTSD, diagnostically PTSD, meaning that you fit the criteria and, and, and typically that's going to include things like sexual violence, right. um, threat to like your life, um, observing someone have a threat to their life or um, natural disasters. Um, so there's like, there's like the shock trauma element, there's yes. like the violent element. Um, and so that is, you know, if someone is listening and thinks they might have PTSD, I, I really recommend as soon as you're able to find a trauma-informed therapist. Yes. And, you know, I come from the modality of EMDR. That's a great uh, resource if you have PTSD. Um, so that's a little bit to talk about that because PTSD is significant. It needs yep. appropriate attention and care. And frankly, if someone is not trained in trauma, there's a good chance that someone could be re-traumatized. Yes. So it's really important to find someone who actually like knows what they're doing. And in this part of, part of what I'm getting at is you, <clears throat> it's one thing to say, um, and it's not untrue that like, you know, you don't get to tell me how injured I am. There's a way in which like, yeah, you were injured by something. And, and like, and interpersonally, like, hey, you don't get to tell me how, how bad that hurts. The other side of the coin is because the brain does have particular capacities and protocols, there are certain ways that are a little bit more universal that like, yeah, this is, this is a kind of trauma that does have a different, oftentimes, most of the time, much deeper and longer lasting effect that, yeah, you can, no one gets to tell you how hurt you are. The other side of the coin is physiologically certain things do actually have a deeper, long, longer lasting effect that there actually is a difference between traumas. I don't, we don't get to just say this was, this was my trauma and it was this, and that was your trauma. And we're kind of in the same boat. That's yeah, not I mean, all the, that's not altogether very healthy. Yeah. I mean, I think what I would say is one important distinction, and I will talk about little t trauma and this is, but I think this might be helpful to add is that my concern sometimes when trauma gets thrown around is when someone uses their trauma as a way to either minimize someone else's experience or weaponize, like I get to do this because of my trauma or yeah. I get to um, be more important. Like, like we, like for me, it's often around the weaponization. That's, yes. that's the key part because, where, I've been, be because I've been traumatized. It justifies behaviors in, in relationship to other people that I don't, I'm no longer accountable for. That's right. That's right. And for me, I love actually that trauma is becoming more normalized to talk about. Yes. I, but we, as with anything, right, we can, we can move towards something and we have to make sure that, you know, specificity of language is important. Right. Yes. And I think that, um, where my biggest concern is, and I think that's maybe what you're speaking to is that, listen, if you have pain, then you have pain. And if that's yes. traumatic pain, then that's valid. If it's pain because it's just pain, then you know what? That's valid too. Yes. But no amount of pain ever gives us the right to harm other people. Yeah, that's good. 
And that doesn't mean we don't need support. And that doesn't mean we don't need care. But that for me is the line at which it, 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 it changes from being helpful to being harmful. There's a way in which that like the you know, lashing out against other people or harming other people like in response to my trauma. There's a way in which like at first, maybe in some way, shape or form, like it's a way I'm trying to deal with. And that's oftentimes the way that gets justified. It's like I was hurt in this way or in these ways. And that's why I do these things. At some yeah. point, though, that pattern becomes <laughs> just one more symptom of your trauma. That like this is that that like which is to say you still have to regardless of what it is, if it's affecting your life and if it's affecting your relationships, you kind of then have to do your work. That's right. Well, and I think you know here's what I would say, and this is something I I, I often hold this tension, and the tension is is that compassion and accountability are not mutually exclusive. And, and whether that's self-accountability or whether that's accountability to the people around us. And in fact, some accountability, and, and, I, and maybe for some people, because you know, I think there can be some yuckiness attached even to the word accountability, but what we're saying, I mean, we're kind of saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Like that's what we're yeah, saying, right? And, and, and there's a mutuality here. It means, you know, even though when the Bible talks about like, um, you know, that I don't think of myself uh, better than I ought. Like how ought I think of myself? Like there's a sense in which I matter and you matter. And that means right. my pain is valid and I need to, and it's important to do work, but that never gives me a reason yeah. to weaponize that and cause pain to other yeah. people. And, and if we're doing that, there's still room for self-compassion, Yeah. but what, and, and in God willing, that will soften us so we can lean into the work, yes, which right. is to honor the pain. And in so doing, we will actually turn towards the world in a way that is more whole, mm -hmm. that is able to set boundaries. I mean, listen, I'm not saying that that there's not going to be anger or that there's not going to need to be some mobilization. Like if you've been harmed mm -hmm. there, it's really normal to experience anger and to experience this desire for change. That's valid, right? Mm -hmm. But um, Dr. Kristen Neff, she yeah. talks about how there's a difference between constructive anger and mm -hmm. destructive anger. Good. And it's really important. It's really important that we recognize anger and honor it, but that we move towards that constructive element. Yeah. Because otherwise, I mean, you know, ang like anger is like a fire and we need yes. it to be sort of that controlled burn. That's right. Because that's how it's going to be the most effective. Um, so to, to go back to yeah. to this idea of big T and little T, I just I want to. Yeah, I just really want to honor that there is a lot of nuance here. Yes. And I don't think that you I don't think you will ever go wrong hmm. with honoring your own pain. Yeah. And when I say that, what I mean is, is to validate it, whatever that is, whether it's trauma, whether it's, you know, whether it's big T trauma, little T trauma, or just woundedness yeah. from being a human, you yeah. will never go wrong by knowing that you are beloved yes. and that your pain is valid. That's good. And may that validation um, allow us to move towards resources and support yeah. that can keep us in understanding we are interconnected. There is mutuality that exists by just being human. Yeah. And so that means that 
that we don't cause harm. Yeah. And in, insofar as I'm able to recognize and honor my own pain and get into the work that I need to do within me, it actually sets me free then and postures me to receive someone else's pain, not into my own life, but to recognize like, oh, this is true of you on this level to, to recognize the difference between someone else's pain and mine and, and yeah. to actually become honoring about it as opposed to what I was getting earlier is like, it really is dishonoring to say like, yeah, totally. You lost this, that, and the other, and all these things happen and you were abused in these ways. Same, same. Cause I had this happen. Like that's so like, that's the stuff where it's like, yeah, like you're very yeah, clearly no. not familiar enough with your own pain to know the difference between that and someone else's. The part of the gate, part of the work, this is true of all kinds of work, but part of when you're talking about healing work, it's not just so that I can be right within myself. It's like, it's, it's so that I, I can be right to some degree within myself so that I can, at mm -hmm. least in part, have relationships with other people who have also been injured. It frees us up yes. is really, I think what it makes me think of is that doing our own work is an essential, it's a dance. Right. Yeah. There's a relational dance because if it gets stuck, it's no longer a dance yeah. and actually probably speaks to a sense of there is some traumatic energy, frankly, yeah. actually, really like because whether our attention gets focused outside and it's stuck or the attention gets stuck inside those both it's stuckness. And really, you know, as a, as a person, like my therapy work is really body centered. It's very yeah. based in our nervous system. And when we understand that, you know, again, that mutuality, we are made to have a dance of the attention of yes. energy of time. Like that's literally just how we're wired. And, and when that can't happen is a signal hmm. that that might need more attention. That Good. may need some more care that might need some more support. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think this is the other thing I will just add is mm -hmm. And I can't remember who came up with this original idea, but it's not me. So I'll say that. But there's this idea of concentric circles of grief. Hmm. Okay. So meaning like if you were looking in like a tree in the middle of a tree, right? Like there's the yes, rings. rings. Like let's say someone experiences a loss. The person who's closest, like a death, the person who's closest to the death in this idea, this theory. Yeah should be placed at the center yeah. of that ring of, of the, you know, the tree rings yep. or whatever. And whoever is on the outside of the ring, like the person on the inside can sort of ask for their support, but yeah. the person on the outside of the ring really shouldn't ask the person on the, in the center yes. for their support. Yeah. And, and, and this is why I think this is a really helpful idea. Like when someone is going through something really hard, it is actually appropriate for their pain to be centered. Yes. So for me as a therapist, like, listen, I'm a survivor of trauma. I've had a hard couple of years. I got, I got stuff going on in my life, but my job as a therapist is when I am in a, when I'm with my client, I am centering their pain. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that my pain isn't valid. It means I is, it is part of my ethical duty <laughs> to have the internal and external resources to contain what might be going on in my life so that I can really honor yeah. and be with and attune to my clients. Like that's, that's the work. 
Insofar as when someone is closer to the pain or the person specifically, if you're talking about centering pain, mm -hmm. that if someone is the, if you're the person closest to the grief or the person experiencing the grief or the trauma, mm -hmm. that your pain, it's appropriate, what you said, it's appropriate for that person's pain to be centered. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about what that looks like on the cultural level? In other words, mm -hmm. um, insofar as that's true individually, mm -hmm. how, like, how well does that translate? to larger cultural moments, whether that's the, sure. the, the Me Too movement uh, over the last, like, you know, should have been longer, like mm -hmm. you know, decade or 12, um, uh, or whether it's um, centering like, in media and otherwise black mm -hmm. pain in America. Mm -hmm. Is there a pretty, is there a direct relationship between, mm -hmm. the, does that work on the larger cultural level as well? You know, as I think about this sort of just off the cuff, I think that it does. I mean, I think that, I mean, I am an advocate for we as a whole entire culture <laughs> need to continue to do more work around mental health. Yeah. And I think as we have more resources, we will actually have better capacity to say, okay, this situation right here is not about me. Yeah. That's good. And that does not mean that my life story and experience doesn't matter. Yes. It means in this particular situation, you know, whether it's um, someone sharing about their experience of racism or a person, a woman's experiencing sexual assault or whatever, you know, sort of systemic thing is happening. Yeah. I think that, you know, we need a certain internal tolerance yes. to be able to say like, it's like this internal and external conversation. The internal part is yeah. me saying to myself, oh, here's some valid pain. Um, I, I have some stuff going on and it, it, there are people that I can talk to about it. And so yeah. I'm going to do that, yeah. but I'm not going to talk about it here because this particular, whatever that is, whether that's on social media or um, maybe isn't the place for me to center that pain. And obviously there is nuance, right? There's yeah. always going to be nuance. So, so, you know, I think that's important to recognize. Um, but I think that, you know, the dance of this is it's never about suppressing our own pain. Mm. It's never about shaming ourselves. Like, oh man, look at you with, you know, you can't even keep your mouth. Like, yeah that's not what it's about. Right. right. And, you know, even in try softer, one of the, the language that I use throughout is compassionate attention. Good. We learn to pay compassionate attention and that compassionate attention actually empowers us to, to, to have a little bit better attunement to, is it appropriate here when my friend just lost their baby for me to say, you know what? I'm really frustrated that I got locked out of my email today. Yeah. And, and I'd like to talk about that. Right. Like it's not to say like, maybe when I go to my therapy later, I could talk about this happened and this happened and my friends going through this. But when I'm with my friend who's in it, like, may I use the resources I have to contain that so that I can be present with them? And, and I do think there's a translation there then to bigger cultural stuff too. You mentioned the, you know, uh, whether appropriate or helpful places to take your pain. Can we talk about Twitter 
<laughs> can we talk about Instagram and talk about Facebook and talk about um, talk about your experience uh, living online? I, I'm one of those folks when you talk about nuance. Um, I'm really interested in the conversation about um, about what it looks like to live online and like feel like uh, life online is a real thing. I'm mm. not one of those folks. It's like, oh, if it's on social media, we, it, you know, it's awful and like <laughs> it's just a joke. Cause it's not like <laughs> the overwhelming majority of social time people spend is facilitated by a device. The overwhelming <laughs> majority of relationships people have are facilitated by a device, by an app. Like it's a very, very, very real part of what it means to be human now. <laughs> yeah. Which is to say it's probably very nuanced as a conversation. Can you talk about your experience personally of mm. life online? Mm -hmm. Do you like, um, how should I say this? Positive, talk about like in general, positive, negative, like <laughs> even if the platform, if platform wise, you're like, I don't really like Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, I prefer Instagram. Some people do. Some people really prefer Twitter. Mm -hmm. And or do you have practices, protocols, rules? Like what's it look like for you to live well online? Is it a happy yeah. place? Talk about That's a great question. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been doing sort of this writing, sharing, you know, sort of somewhat like publicly for about, gosh, almost six years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I first started... <laughs> very small, you know, I was pumped if I had a blog and I had like 10 likes, it was like, sweet, you know? Um, and, and that for me was this really big step where, um, it was a part of my healing process to, to, to speak sort of on behalf of yes. my own story. Okay. And so I just share that because that's been part of my journey is that yeah. part of what has led me to do some of this publicly is, is a combination of really wanting to be helpful for like, to walk alongside other people and what yes. I've learned, but also on behalf of so much of my story that never has been able to be like sort of honored okay, and, and was never. Um, and I don't mean, I mean that in the sense, like it just wasn't talked about. It wasn't understood. It wasn't heard. I mean, even the language in the therapeutic realm, um, I can't tell you how many times that I was told how strong I was. Um, how functional I was, how well I was doing while inside I was hurting so much, but it was so confusing because how could those things coexist? And since you mean to be in the middle for you to be in the middle of a, of what you were experiencing is more like a crisis. And it wasn't like so much that I, I was able to live out my responsibilities, but it took tremendous, it was it was sometimes caused tremendous anxiety, depression. Um, and you had voices of folks who didn't know how hard it was for you to stay straight. Yeah, saying, hey, because you're on doing a great job. And you're like, you like, I appreciate that. I really don't I, <laughs> yeah. I do. At the same time, you actually have no idea what you're yeah. talking about when you call me strong. And so you and, might not want to. And that's why part of my journey has been to give language because for so long, mental health was based off of like, people were like, if you look okay on the outside, then you are. Yeah. And part of my journey has been, I have been an achiever. I have gotten some stuff done in my life, yeah. but it has come at a tremendous cost to me. Yes. Tremendous. Yeah. And it has been my journey to learn to truly pay compassionate attention to myself. Yeah. So I just give that caveat because this is, that's the posture from which I entered sort of this public 
world, right? And so for me, I would say it's been a mixed bag. I mean, it really, there have been times when it's caused me tremendous pain, to be honest. Um, But I've learned, like, I think partly one of the things that I've had in place the entire time, it's, it's a principle from Brene Brown, where it's like, she had, she talked about somewhere that um, it's best not to share things publicly Mm -hmm. that you feel like if the people responding don't really get it or they don't like it or they reject it, that that's going to cause you like tremendous harm. Well, this is what, this is part of what leads me to that is because when, when, uh, when I was talking about, you know, cultural pain and like centering black pain, I've, you know, I have a number of friends who work as advocates and black storytellers online. And part of the, part of what they came to over the last five to seven years is like, I don't want to speak into white spaces. And that's exactly what they're getting after is like, there's so much as I'm sharing my story as a black woman, there's so much translating that I need to do. There's so much work that I need to do to get you to hear and understand me, but it's actually re-triggering. And so it's not good for me to actually to do that. And, and obviously a lot of that was happening online and you end up in conversations in a relationship with a lot of folks who don't really know you online, which is part of what you're going after is like, know, know the space that you're, you're going to be entering into yes. when, you're, when you're there and what it might cost you to try to do that well. Right. Yeah. I think that's so valid. And I think, um, you know, obviously I am a white woman. And so my experience is, is bring, even as a trauma survivor, I bring that experience with me that that's, you know, I have privileges because of that. And so, you know, that's something I continue to work on and be aware of in my own, who I am um, and how I, and how I show up. But I think for me, what's interesting is the thing, a lot of the things I share, I mean, not everything, but many of the things that I do share, I mean, this is 10 years past. Yes. Right. Like I've been working on this for 15 years and it's been in the last three that I've have, have actually like, like this has been underground for a really long time. And is that to some degree intentional for you as in terms of, I mean, like you, you've shared bits and pieces, but to be public Mm -hmm. about like deep trauma and deep work, part of what I'm hearing you say is like, you're not ready to be public about this until mm-hmm. you've really done the sort of like done like long, deeper work. Is that part of what you're getting? You know, I want to be mindful that I really believe that people are the experts on their own experience. Okay, good. And I'm not saying that I don't think that there's some principles here that are important to pay attention to, but I think two actions, like two people could do the exact same thing. And for one person, it could be really empowering. And for the other person, it could be re-traumatizing. Yeah. And so for me, I want to be, I, you know, part of my work is always to recognize there's so much nuance in stories. Sometimes it's really important for someone, maybe they haven't been doing as much. I'm putting up air quotes, internal work for as long, but they need to name something Yeah. because they need it. Yeah, because that's what their story and their body and their their younger parts are asking of them. Yeah, and if that's that person and that's what they need, then and and they have support and they're doing that in a way where they're like, you know, I would encourage them to have some other support around them. Like, I think it's worth exploring. I I don't want to just say, boom, don't do that. Yeah, but I do caution folks because it is 
you know, the, the internet, for lack of a better term, it's a little bit of the wild west. Yeah. It's a little yeah. bit of the wild west. Yeah, and true. you have to, I think, you know, t- like you have to just be aware of that. And I'm really grateful. I have had, um, like my, the community around me, like on Instagram and even on Twitter, um, has been like, I just feel really grateful for the people that I've, I've been able to interact with. And, um, not to say that there haven't been some really at times painful interactions or, you know, anytime you try to speak out on anything that is maybe doesn't fit a narrative or something that can be hard. Um, but I just would say for me, it's, it's like, like I kind of consider this work, I don't know if this, this kind of almost feels cheesy, but for me, it's true. Like it's warrior work Yeah. for me to do the both, like to be healthy and regulated, regulated enough to show online, show yep. up online yep. takes a lot of energy for yes. me. It is emotional labor to and be I, online. I wonder if that's the case for a lot of folks who don't identify that as what happens. In other words, mm-hmm. that's like the exhaustion, the frustration, like some of the some of the sort of psychosomatic patterns that folks have, the odd, mm-hmm. the sort of the odd postures towards addiction that folks have with with their device use, mm-hmm. to not recognize that it is emotional labor. Like I get that you're just yes. holding a thing; it's four by three. I understand that, <laughs> but the, but the the amount of emotional energy that goes into your experience, and mm-hmm. even like the preparation for the experience, that's probably exhausting you. Like, uh, in the same it way that, can take in, a lot. In the same way, yes, and the same way that, other, that relationships in general can be exhausting. That, like, mm-hmm. when you think about, I'm going to go see Aunt Frida, and you know, <laughs> like, gosh, I she she's draining. And for the three <laughs> days, and and for the three days leading up to the trip, you know, to mm-hmm. Wisconsin, you and your family are like, oh my gosh, <laughs> and you recognize that. But there's so le- like- there's a little bit less of that because of the immediacy mm-hmm. of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram mm-hmm. and Snapchat. It's like it because it's so immediate. I wonder if we don't pay as much attention to the actual cost of our time there, which isn't to say that it always costs in a bad way, but relationship always costs you something. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I mean, I think part of it is it's really easy to get disembodied, right? So we're, Mm -hmm. we're, we're moving into like, we, you know, there's a sense in which our bodies, it's easy to get into sort of a numb, right? Scroll. Uh, until we get something that activates us. And then there's this very, um, it can be very like, like too much up and down and yeah. not enough, just like I'm living from my actual self, like body, not only that, but the level and the amount of information that's coming at us. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot we can't control. We can't control what we see for trauma survivors. There can be a ton of triggers that come so quickly and so fast that even with good preparation, it's hard to manage yep. that. Yep. And the more overstimulated, the more exhausted we are, the harder we're going to, like, it's going to be even harder to regulate ourselves, Yes. which I think speaks a lot to sometimes the way people at times act online that for me, you know, I think I'm like, would you say that if, if you were looking at the person, like, would you feel comfortable like saying that to a person, you know? And I think, um, I think all of that is really valid. And I think my thing has been to do my best to walk a line Mm -hmm. where I say, this is part of our culture. Like this is part of, like, I don't think it's for me. And again, other people might feel differently, but for me, it doesn't feel realistic to be completely 
completely not online. Um, especially, I mean, frankly, as an author, like that's just a thing that is kind of a part of it, but it's been important to me to say, okay, so how can I be creative? How can I protect my energy? How do I protect, you know, I'm a highly sensitive person. I'm a trauma survivor and I hear a lot of pain. Mm. A lot of pain. Yeah. So you put those three together and then you put it on a pandemic and you got two young kids like, yeah. holy moly, like yeah. that's enough. That's more than enough, you that's know? More than enough. And so for me, it's, you know, you ask like, what are some of my protocols? And um, I mean, this year I've taken more like time offline sabbaticals than I have in the past five years. Um, part of it is to recover from my book that came out in January of 2020. I mean, just the such an honor. The the book has really resonated, Yes, but it's also like, it was at a time when I had the least amount of support or childcare <laughs> or like really any bandwidth. And I was like, holy moly, like perfect storm kind of. Yeah. Um, and so like, you know, I regularly try to take weekends off. I regularly delete my apps from my phone. Hmm. Um, I, I've been in a rhythm of just about almost every other month I take like a little bit of a longer time offline. Maybe that's like, you know, four days to like a week because what I notice in my own body, you know, I mean, there's just truly, uh, I mean, just from a very physical sense, um, the, the dopamine hits that we get from new information is in and is in and of itself. It has an addictive quality. Yes. And there's no shame to that. Like, this is just like, this is just the truth. (laughs) This is how this is how the brain made. Yep. And so for me, when I choose to get offline, I, if I've been online a lot and then I get off the first day, I have like this itch to like, check Mm -hmm. it. I want to check it. I want to check it. (laughs) And I, it's almost like, I really have to like ride that and say, okay, yep, there it is. You know? And, and I try to be really kind to myself. And if I, if I end up looking once, okay. But I think of it as sort of titrating off. Yes. And I do that pretty regularly because that helps me come back to a a more centered place. Yes. Um, And so, I mean, those, so, you know, the more intense things are, the more often I take breaks is kind of my philosophy. Um, And so, but yeah, I mean, it has been, it's been bittersweet, you know, like it's been so cool to like, you know, as, as folks have, as I've connected with more folks online, as, as more folks have found me, those types of things, like it's an honor, yeah. like getting to, getting to have the sort of ability to encourage people that I will never meet probably, yeah, you know, or like have my work influence them in ways that are helpful and meaningful. Like, man, that's like, that's phenomenal. Um, but it does come at a cost. Tell me about, um, you, you mentioned, we'll wrap it up with this, is, you know, you, the work that you're doing now to some degree is tied to a decade plus of uh, schooling and inner work and experience. Um, I'll caveat this uh, uh, first by saying one of the other things I really enjoyed you doing at the very beginning of the book is talking about how much you do like your work mm-hmm. um, because there is a um i don't even know how to describe it yet because it's not like a big 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 deal but there is this little like anti-work there's like a there's like a almost like a fissure uh mm-hmm. like a cult in the cultural conversation between like health 
and mm. anything else. And that work <laughs> ends up getting kind of um, shuffled off into the corner with hustle and overwork and and it's not like mm -hmm. no, no no work is a beautiful essential element of what it means to be human i mean elon musk dropped that hint a couple of days ago or whatever about the tesla bot and said that at, the, uh, the, at some point in the future um if you want to do uh, menial manual labor things you can but you won't have to and mm. folks are like oh how fun and i was like i don't think that's actually true <laughs> like, i think i think I think that's trash. And I think like working, <laughs> living in your body, like actually having work is part of mm. an essential part of what it means to be whole and healthy that like mm. the natural, my natural healthy posture as a person is not rest. My natural healthy posture as a person is not work. It's belovedness and both mm. work and rest find their home in that. But I've, but like functionally it gets played out here. I loved that you celebrated work at the very beginning because mm. so much, so much of the work I'm paying attention to now is very like, it's just, if, if you're working, you're probably working too much, et cetera. Mm. So I really enjoyed mm -hmm. that you, you did that. Mm. I want the, the stuff you're doing now, as you mentioned, a lot of it is tied to 15 years of inner work, of learning to rest, of getting healthy, also doing like tons of research. Um, what will it look like for you to, uh, and you get to define this for yourself, to have been successful? And not just in this season, but when you think about 15 years from now. Hmm. At 15 years from now, if you look back over the next decade and a half, what will it have meant for you? How will you, hmm. what metrics will you use? How will you define the success of this next decade and a half? Hmm. Oh, I love that question. Um, and first, I just want to say, I'm so glad that you resonated. I, I, I want to answer your question, but I just want to say, like, I do think work matters. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, I wrote earlier in the year that I think of it a lot is may I work from love and not for it. And that yes. for me is like the place, right? Like that's my sweet spot of I'm doing this like from myself, not for approval, not, not for whatever, like this is what I'm made to do, you know? Yeah. So I just wanted to say that because I, I really, I love what you're saying. Um, so this question of success, I love this because I talk about, I, I often, my husband and I, we always riff about this idea of yeah. what does it look like to redefine success? And I think our culture often has projected what success means yes. through things like, here's how much money you have, and here's what you're able to do, and here's your achievement and all this stuff, which right. I know many people are familiar with that. And I think for me, one of the big things is that I lived in integrity with myself. Yes. That the choices I've made are in alignment with who God made me to be. That's really good. So whether that is to lean in or to lean out, whether that is to go through seasons where I'm producing more or producing less, mm -hmm. it's like to, to be in that and not to do it perfectly. Cause that's not possible. No. Um, but you know, for me, one of the longer I do my own work, it's like, there's these themes and they rise up mm -hmm. and there's like all this stuff that's happened below it, but like, it gets in some ways more simple yes. the, the longer I go. And, and one of those is that I live as being beloved, yes. um, for me that, uh, you know, it, and I love that you identify with that so much as well. And I, part of my journey of healing 
has been, I often capitalize beloved. And the reason I do that is because I feel like that's the name God gave me. Yes. Um, And not just me, obviously, but, but my experiences with God, it was like, this isn't just like, uh, this isn't just an adjective. No, it's not. (laughs) That's who you, that's who you are. Yes. And so for me, like those things tie in together, like being able to live in integrity with myself is accessing my belovedness because there's the trust that whether I've had a good day on the internet or I've had a terrible day, whether I sold a lot of books or I didn't sell any books, whether people agreed with me, whether they thought I was ridiculous, what like this is home. Yes, that's good. And so I just want to keep coming back home to that. And if I have been able, I don't know, like it's even like I just know, like I I think that's, I just want to keep doing that. And for me, that's what success means. Excellent. That's really good. Ani, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, this this was awesome. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Yahtzee Podcast. If you would like to follow up with Andy, you can jump to andykolber.com. It's A-U-N-D-I-K-O-L-B-E-R, andykolber.com. You can also find her on Instagram where she does a lot of remarkable work along with a number of the other therapists that I've had over the course of the last year. If you'd like to be part of the team of folks who are bringing conversations like this to the table, jump to patreon.com backslash Justin McRoberts and join that team. We would love to have you. Until next time.